Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. So, we're in uncharted territory here. We're done with all the books. And to move forward, one of the things I've been wanting to talk about is the idea of a mother in heaven and spirit birth and if gender is eternal and then is God's body essential. We're going to talk about all those things, but as is what we say we want to do here, in order to have those conversations and have them responsibly, we have to kind of lay the groundwork and then understand the thought in a certain order. So I thought we'd start with the idea of what intelligences are and spirit birth. So I'll put a link to this, but I already recorded a reading of a paper that my dad wrote called The Idea of Preexistence in the Development of Mormon Thought. And that just goes over exactly as it says, just the history and evolution of the idea of pre-existence throughout the history of Mormonism. Some people think that it's always kind of been the same, but as we'll go over tonight, it has not been. So we're not exactly following that paper, but we're going to take the basic ideas from it and then talk about this question. Is there spirit birth or isn't there? And that may be surprising for some to hear that that's not exactly settled because it's taught today as though it's, you know, completely settled and decided on. But we'll find out, hopefully, with what I'm going to talk about, or what we're all going to talk about, that that's not exactly the case. So to start us out, I'm going to read a quote from my dad's paper. It says, The Mormon belief that the individual spirit of man existed in the presence of God before the creation of the world is unique in modern Christianity. Mormons have rejected the creator-creature dichotomy of patristic theology and its logical corollaries, creatio ex nihilo, and the idea of God as a single infinite absolute. Mormons consider man one of the given entities of the universe, the necessary self-existing offspring of God, and therefore the same ultimate nature as God, uncreate and, and capable of eternal progression. Man as necessary being could not, not exist, his primal self is not created and cannot be. Nevertheless, the history of the idea of pre-existence in Mormon thought is one of varying interpretation, of refinement and controversy. Controversy stems largely from the inherent tension in a finitistic theology from an earlier period of absolutist preconceptions. Nowhere is this tension more evident in Mormonism than in its doctrine of pre-existence. So, in your paper, you start out by labeling different periods, and the first period is the very, very beginning of the church, and you have put the dates 1830 to 1835 and called that absolutist preconceptions. So if you would, Dad, kind of give a very brief overview of what, you know, I, I mean, I think we know that modernly Christians that aren't Mormons tend to believe in creation ex nihilo. So kind of give a brief history of this idea of preexistence, because I'm sure, you know, Joseph Smith wasn't the first one to think about it. Right. I mean, what we have in early Mormonism are passages in the Book of Mormon, a revelation given in 1833 that's now DNC 93, and the Book of Moses that was done between 1830 and late 1833. 
in Alma 13 in the Book of Mormon, you have this notion of an eternal priesthood that is possessed by essentially an eternal person. In Alma 42, you have what I would consider to be kind of an assumption of preexistence where all humans existed in the presence of God before the fall. And mankind returns to his prior paradisiacal state. And then we have in DNC 93 what I would call ideal preexistence, where we preexist before we exist on earth in the foreknowledge of God, but in a way that seems to be tending toward realness and independence from God. In fact, there are statements in DNC 93 that intelligence exists independent of God, but it still seems to be the intelligence of God that we're talking about, and hence the knowledge of God. And in the book of Moses, we have the statement that all things were created spiritually before they were created temporally on earth. I think we could say with Orson Pratt that without later developments, we wouldn't have recognized any of these as precursors to the belief in preexistence. Most, in fact, I think it's, and I have documented it, it's demonstrable that the members of the church at that time thought of the preexistent spirit. Well, they didn't think of a preexistent spirit. What they thought of was the creation of the human spirit in the same way that general Christianity did. It was created at the time, either a conception or some process at birth. And so their beliefs in regard to the spirit were not a departure from the Catholic Protestant world in which most of Mormon converts grew up. But we do have these, what I will call, foreshadowing in these scriptural passages of a trajectory that would later be further developed. Great. Okay. And then just also in that section, and you touched on, you said ideal preexistence. So from what I read and from some other sources, and I think another pretty good source on this is Terrell Givens' book, Wrestling the Angel. He gives a pretty good synopsis of the idea of preexistence in Christianity before, and I think like some early church fathers like Origen had some idea of preexistence, but there's like this battle that was always going forth, whether that was a heresy or whether that was plausible. It was one of the plausible thoughts in early Christianity, but ultimately creation ex nihilo went out. But when they did think of preexistence, they didn't necessarily, well, I mean, maybe some of them did, but they they had what you had termed ideal preexistence, which means basically that people existed, but it was more like they existed inside of God in his infinite foreknowledge. So you existed in a weird way in the mind of God before you you came about just because he has all things present before him or something like that. Yeah, oh, I've documented Justin Martyr writing about 180 AD actually uses language that would suggest that humankinds are returning. Again, this is the notion of a return to a prior state. We have in the letter of 1 Clement, so this would be about 120 AD, a pretty clear statement that presupposes preexistence of human spirits. And as you've pointed out, Oregon taught, and I don't think he was teaching necessarily ideal preexistence, I think he had the notion of morally accountable spirits that existed before this life because the reason that Oregon adopted the notion of preexistence was to explain the differences between people in their moral standing in the world at the time of birth, because some are treated differently than others, and it would have to be based upon what they did before they were born, according to Oregon. Now, I say Oregon because Aziz Atiyah, who was a copt, pronounced it Oregon, and a lot of people pronounce it origin, but because Aziz Atiyah would know better than anybody I've ever met how to pronounce it, and he pronounced it Oregon, that's how I pronounce it. All right, and then the, the first quote from there, like you said, is from 
DNC 93, and it's a very famous scripture that Joseph Smith developed this thought later, but as you can see, the word intelligence here is not necessarily referring to individual intelligences, but it's more like intelligence singular, like a singular substance. He says, Ye were in the beginning with the Father, that which is spirit, even the spirit of truth, and truth is knowledge of things as they are, and as they were, and as they are to come. Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence, or the light of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can be. So that seems to be the beginnings of, well, at least the recorded beginnings of his teachings on intelligence, but again, intelligence is singular here, and it seems to be kind of more abstract than a, than a mind of man, as he refers to it later. He just calls it, or the light of truth. Yeah, I mean, what we're looking at is something that's kind of straddling individuality, right? So we have this notion of intelligence. As you point out, it is singular, but so is the term man. When it says man was in the beginning, it seems to be referring to all humankind in kind of a corporate identity or reality. By corporate, I mean something like Adam is. Adam represents all humankind, and all humankind is contained in Adam in a sense. And so it seems to me that, again, this is, as you point out, the beginning of a trajectory of interpretation. Without the later statements by Joseph Smith and Revelations, I'm not sure that we would have this clear idea of an independent spirit that is uncreated. But the bottom line is that looking at this in the context of Joseph Smith's later teachings, it seems to be the beginning of that kind of a teaching. And I just point that out just because it's going to come up again because it I think it's the source of some of the competing, or at least one of the main competing views of pre-existent intelligences or spirits. Right. What we get is when later interpreters come to it, they've got to take into account DNC 93 as a revelation. And so they're looking at the use of the word intelligence and comparing it to the use of the word intelligences that was later used by Joseph Smith to describe the uncreated human spirit. And they're trying to make sense of all of that, and, and there are different ways of interpreting it in Mormon thought. Okay, and then I'm just going to give a brief synopsis of what Joseph Smith came to towards the end of his life, and then we're going to come back to that at the end, but I just want to have that be a launching point for the rest of the discussion here. There's a lot of quotes I'm going to go over after we talk about the different points of view, but this one I think is kind of the culminating view of Joseph Smith on intelligences, and it's from the King Follett Discourse, and in this passage he seems to indicate that the mind of man is eternal and not just elements that make up that person or, you know, some of the later views we're going to talk about. So here's some quotes. So he says, The mind of man is as immortal as God himself. I know that my testimony is true. And then I skip ahead and he says, Is it logic to say that a spirit is immortal and yet has a beginning? Because if a spirit has a beginning, it will have an end. That is good logic. I want to reason further on the spirit of man, for I am dwelling on the spirit and body of man on the subject of the dead. I take my ring from my finger, and then liken it unto the mind of man, the immortal spirit, because it has no beginning. Suppose I cut it in two. As the Lord lives, because it has a beginning, it would have an end. All the fools and learned and wise men from the beginning of creation, who say that man had a beginning, prove that he must have an end. If that were so, the doctrine of annihilation would be true. But, if I am right, I might with boldness proclaim from the housetops that God never did have power to create the spirit of man at all. I'm going to read that again. God never did have the power to create the spirit of man at all. God himself could not create himself. 
Intelligence exists upon a self-existent principle. It is a spirit from age to age, and there is no creation about it. Moreover, all the spirits that God ever sent into the world are susceptible to enlargement. Anyway, in there I point out that he makes no distinction between the mind of man and the spirit of man. So he says those are synonymous, and he says that the mind of man or the spirit is eternal, has no beginning, was never created. He says very directly that God does not have the power to create the spirit of man. Yeah, and remember, this is given a few months before his death. It's given in April 1844. Joseph Smith is martyred in June of 1844. We could also look, and I, I think the, the singular source in Mormon scripture is the book of Abraham 318, where Joseph Smith had already published in 1842. And it reads this and says, How be it that he made the greater star? Also, if there be two spirits, and one shall be more intelligent than the other, Yet these two spirits, notwithstanding one is more intelligent than the other, have no beginning. They existed before. They shall have no end. They shall exist after, for they are nolum or eternal. And he's using Sizes's transliteration of Haholam in Hebrew, which is an indefinite period of time. It can mean eternal or forever. But he clearly uses the English word eternal and says they have no beginning they existed before. So here we have the scriptural reading that backs up this teaching in the King Follett Discourse. And this was Joseph Smith's established view from at least 1840, that there are intelligences used synonymously with spirits or the mind of man, and it is uncreated. And they are not created by God in any sense, because God doesn't have the power to create these kinds of realities. Because not even God can create something that is eternal and uncreated. And so this is the basis. This is what Joseph Smith consistently taught. And virtually every single writer who have arrived at the same conclusion. Joseph Smith did not see a beginning to the spirit. He did not view it as having come about through some kind of organization of spirit matter. Or through some kind of gestation period. Or through some kind of sexual relations between divine beings. Joseph Smith believed that these beings were uncreated and couldn't be created because of their very nature. And so this view, the one that is Joseph Smith's view, the one that is the scriptural view, is inconsistent with the notion of a spirit birth. And the question becomes, well, was Joseph Smith consistent? Did he have other ideas rattling around in his head that were inconsistent with his view of an eternal intelligence and he was just inconsistent? And the answer is no. I've scoured and the other people who have looked at these ideas have scoured the view to see if there is anything that it can be responsibly said to be from Joseph Smith that taught the doctrine that there is a spirit, birth, or creation. And the answer is there is no such thing. Moreover, we can buttress that with the fact that we have a pretty complete record of th things Joseph Smith taught even in private to individuals from the time period. The fact is, is that when we get back to a historically responsible assessment of evidence, that is, we look at sources that date from this particular period, we find nothing about spirit birth at all. There is nothing attributed to Joseph Smith. Now, there are later attributions, but they are anachronistic, in my view. And so, having reviewed the evidence very carefully, my view is that Joseph Smith not only didn't teach spirit birth, but what he did teach is inconsistent with spirit birth. And like I said, we'll come back to that and I'll make the case even stronger going over several quotes from Joseph Smith and then we'll come back and see how some other teachings 
primarily about eternal marriage, so hold your comments now. We'll get back to that. But some of his comments about eternal marriage and what that means for us in the afterlife may have confused some people, but we'll get to that in a minute. So that's the first view. The second view that happened after Joseph Smith's death or seemed to arise primarily comes from, I always forget, is it Parley or Orson Pratt? Orson. Orson, okay. So both the Pratt brothers were theologians, but Orson had kind of the more developed thought on this. And so he seemed to favor, again, the idea from DNC 93 that he kind of grabbed onto this idea of intelligence being a singular thing. So I wrote as a synopsis of this view that intelligence is more like a building block, like an atom, and can be organized into a being that gives rise to consciousness. And I think Orson Pratt actually had an idea of a literal spirit birth, or I've heard this view also just using a spirit organization. But the main overview of this particular position is that consciousness arises from kind of like you would think of a cell, I guess, in our body. So a cell is an organism that's alive and separate, but once you get billions of them, then that leads to a body which gives rise to a brain which consciousness arises from that. And so that's sort of his view, I think I understand. What else about this view do you... Give us what people think about that, and then Jacob, if you want to pipe in about that, that's fine too. So the view that was elucidated by the Pratts, both Orson and Parley, they both wrote different things that would indicate that they both held this belief. There is this, what I'm going to call a conglomerate, if you will, or we could call it a form of panentheism where the most basic reality that pervades everything is intelligence. And what we do to create spirits is to individuate this already existing intelligence and make it an individual. So I think what they were doing, they, they were reading DNC 93 saw the singular use of intelligence and how it was the same as the spirit of truth and God's intelligence and knowledge. And they reasoned that there had to be this primal existence of intelligence independent. DNC 93 actually says that it's independent in this sphere, meaning it's apart from God. And so they're reading this and then they're putting it together with the later teaching and saying, well, but there's also this, this notion that we have an individual spirit that is a morally accountable, separate cognitive center of consciousness. And so they're putting those two together to come up with this view. And so the prior notion, to put it crudely, we have this stuff out there that is intelligent. And from this underlying primordial reality, we individuate it into individual spirits that then become the basis, the, you know, what we would say is the spirit of a person that's eternal. Again, the one of the foundations of that is that passage in DNC ninety three. Do you know was Orson Pratt like influential on Joseph Smith during the time where he would have written DNC ninety three, or is he not in the picture at that time? No, he's not influential on Joseph Smith at the time. He's not even really known to Joseph Smith at this time. So, all right. Well, other proponents of this view are Bruce R. McConkie. There's some other views that evolved that we'll talk about next, but Bruce O'Marconkey kind of brought us back around to this view where, and Brigham Young too, they're, they're, they kind of overlap a lot, but basically this, I grouped these people into this idea because they have basically no eternal individualism, we'll call it, where your mind as a self is not eternally existing. It arises from other things. There's still a pre-existent spirit before humanity, but that spirit had a beginning and is created I don't want to say by God, but I want to say out of God, because God 
is in a sense identical with this intelligence that pervades all things. That was the Pratt's view, by the way. They were panentheistic. And so they had this view of God indwelling in all things and, you know, being the sources of intelligence in all things. And the individuation happened at a particular moment in time. They later developed it in such a way when they were aligning it with belief in polygamy and um, the way they viewed polygamy and they viewed it as a spirit. The spirit was created through a period of gestation. All right. And then, Jacob, do you have any questions about that view or any experience with it or just like stories? I don't know. I Because like, I remember kind of believing this view. I remember kind of it being taught to me at some point. I don't remember exactly how I picked it up, but what, what's your experience with that? Yeah, I remember being taught it as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, isn't this kind of Skousen's view as well? Is that like there's yeah, a spirit yeah, birth, but it's an organization type birth? Yeah, there's an organization of spirit matter. And so it's this organization that constitutes the beginning of the individual. Right. It was and also taught by properly Joseph organized, Hill. that's when you get the consciousness. Like there's intelligence, but it's like a blubbering pool of not really conscious. It's just potential intelligence, possibly. Yeah, and, and let me suggest the reason that you were taught that is that it made it into the manuals of basically correlation because it was also taught by Joseph Fielding Smith. And Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce McConkie kind of became the orthodoxy out of which the first curriculum was developed in the church manuals for these kind of things. And so what we find is this idea of being taught to seminary kids and, you know, generally as if though it were the only view. All right, well, let's move on to this next view. So the way I wrote this, it probably doesn't sound like a good view, but I think most Mormons hold this view in addition to one of these other views in some way. So I don't know if this is necessarily a separate view, but it's part of one. So I put like number two, what we just talked about, or like one of the options in number two, because I said that could either have literal spirit birth or like just organization of some kind. But we were literally birthed in some way from a heavenly mother, and we were literally sired by heavenly father with some sort of either spiritual sex cells is the best I could come up with, or what Brigham Young called spirit matter. But I believe, at least in Brigham Young's view, there was no conscious or individual people before this spirit birth. He was very literal in that just as it is on earth, as it is in heaven, spirits came about the exact same way that babies come here. Two beings come together and share their opposite whatevers, and then from that springs forth new life. So uh, and again, we're going to get into that a lot more when we more directly talk about Heavenly Mother. But I think this view is what, I don't know if you know who, I mean, you do, but there's a, a Mormon thinker and writer named Jonathan Stapley. He is termed a wildly popular folk. Yeah, I think that it became kind of a dominant belief. It was what the Pratts eventually came to, and of course Brigham Young taught it. One of the problems that we have in Mormonism is that this belief in spirit birth was taken up into the Adam-God doctrine, and even though it's difficult to say whether originally Eliza Arsenal thought this way, but later on she identified the mother in heaven with Eve, and father in heaven with Adam, and they were, of course, begetting children spiritually. And so the view of spare birth got tied up into that doctrine. I think the source that most people would look to who espouse this doctrine would be DNC 132.19 where it says that those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, quote, shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, all heights and depths. They shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things, 
as hath been sold upon their heads, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of seeds forever and ever. And that gets interpreted to mean, well, what else could it mean? It's in the context of marrying a wife and they're going to have seed forever. That's not what it meant in the original context. In the original context, having seeds forever meant that you were with your family forever, that you were with those that you had propagated in human life. You were sealed to them forever, and your families were eternal, essentially. And the bonds that were created couldn't be broken, and that's what it was to have a continuation of seeds, not a propagation of seeds or new births, because it doesn't talk of spirit birth. But that's the source that a lot of people look to. The earliest statement of that kind of a view that I can find, it's not really a statement. What we find is there is this kind of speculation by Lorenzo Snow, and what he does is in May of 1840, he writes a letter, Elder Snow writes a letter to Elder Walker, and he just basically wildly speculates. What he says is, you know, in, in essence, let us indulge our follies at this time and wander a moment into the field of imagination. <laughs> so he goes on this imaginative walk. Some 13,000 years ago in heaven or in paradise, say, we came into existence, or in other words, received a spiritual organization according to the laws that govern spiritual births and eternity. We were there and then, say, born in the express image and likeness of him by whom we receive our spiritual birth, possessing the same faculties and powers, but in their infantile state yet susceptible of an elevation equal to that possessed by our spiritual father. And so he comes on, eventually he comes down and concludes, you know, he's winding up and, and says, we all shouted for joy in anticipation of one day being like their father in all things, both in relation to becoming the father of spirits, that of glorified bodies, so that God might be all in all, so we might be called by his name, by spirits yet unborn, and thus we have an everlasting and ever-increasing kingdom of our own, like unto that of his own. And so this is far from being official or even public. It's just a personal correspondence. But we have the man who will eventually become the fourth president of the church engaging in wild speculation that includes the notion of a spirit birth. It's the earliest reference to a spirit birth in this nature that is clear that I can find. I don't think a whole lot can be made of that. In 1843, Benjamin Johnson says that he was privately instructed by Joseph Smith that those who are not sealed by the Holy Spirit will cease to increase when they die. That is, he says, i.e., they will not have any children in the resurrection. But those who are married by the power and authority of the priesthood in this life and continue without committing the sin against the Holy Ghost will continue to increase and have children in the celestial glory. He goes on, he, he may enter into the other glory, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have increase. I think this is misread. I think what he's really talking about is raising children in the resurrection and continuing to have them in the resurrection, not having spirit birth of children. It's often cited as a basis for spirit birth, but I don't believe that it is. And this is his recollection of what was occurring on May 16, 1843. And so I just don't see this as really a statement of spirit birth. But those are, I think the basis for what we're talking about in Mormonism. I mean, uh, you kind of preempted what we're going to get at later, I, but that's fine. We can do it now. They started teaching spirit birth right off the bat, almost, it seems, right after Joseph Smith died. So do you think it was just that, I mean, I have guesses to, obviously, we have the writings now, but not everyone had access to all of the teachings of Joseph Smith, and lots of people were always on 
you know, missions and stuff. And so maybe they speculated on their own and then the teachings never really, you know, they didn't have the book of Joseph Smith's teachings. And so when he's gone, some other people like, let's say, Orson Pratt, who was a very influential person in early Mormonism, has a loud voice saying, no, it's not like this. It's through a spirit birth. There's only one intelligence and people rose from that. Do you think that it's just like a competing views or did they forget that Joseph Smith taught this stuff? But it's hard to remind people that they didn't have access to written sources the way that we do, certainly. But even books were expensive, and having access to what Joseph Smith was actually teaching, unless you were in Nauvoo, was just, just hardly ever happened. And so, so the earliest statement, and we can get into it right away, we have two early statements, one in December of 1844 by W.W. W. Phelps, who composed a hymn. And then we have another hymn that was composed by Elizar Snum. Neither of which is, of course, a revelation. And let me point this out, and I want to be expressed as I can about this. Though in modern Mormonism there is a well-developed belief in a mother in heaven, there is no basis whatsoever in revelation or scripture for that view. There is a folk belief, what I call a cultural overbelief, that has arisen, and so many people have taught it. I compare it to the doctrine that blacks can't have the priesthood. It's kind of a meme that gets going. And no one in authority dares to challenge it because it becomes the established orthodoxy. But there's no basis for the belief in Revelation or Scripture. They may, however, be drawing what they consider to be a rational conclusion from the teachings on plural marriage and eternal increase. But as I said, I think that's a misreading of DNC 132. In any event, on December 31st, 1844, they sang this from W.W. Feltz that said, Come to me, hear the mystery that man hath not seen. Here's our Father in heaven and Mother the Queen. Here are worlds that have been and worlds yet to be. Here's eternity, endless, amen, come. Now, I think all too much has been made of this particular line, here's our Father in heaven and Mother the Queen. It's just so unclear what's being referred to here to me. Is our Father in heaven also having a mother who's, who's a queen? And so why doesn't it say Father in heaven who's our king and Mother in heaven who is the queen? That would make a lot more sense to me. But as it's written, it's just this kind of statement hanging out there begging for some kind of further elucidation, but we never get it. Yeah, and like I said, we're going to have a whole podcast on that, but that is interesting. The fourth view comes mainly from one of uh, the Quorum of Seventy and a very, at least in intellectual Mormonism, a very famous figure. His name is Brigham H. Roberts, or B.H. Roberts, and he was kind of like a leading intellectual during his time, and he wrote a bunch of manuals and stuff. Anyway, you know, he actually was writing a history of the church, too, so he had access to a lot of the documents that maybe a lot of the people hadn't really seen. He noticed the prevailing view of the church of spirit birth and coming into existence at that time, but he also was looking over the documents and the King Follett Discourse specifically, for example, and what's interesting, at least from my studies, is that most of the leadership was not familiar with that sermon, and didn't even trust it that it was if it was like reliable or not even though it's probably one of the more reliable things that we have that joseph smith said since five people recorded it but anyway his view is an attempt to make sense of joseph smith's view that he understood quite clearly as we elucidated that the mind of man is eternal and never was created so he's like well that's weird because we were teaching that people came into existence once they were either organized or born of heavenly parents so what am I going to do here? 
So he came up with a very clever idea that the intelligence of man, or the mind of man, is kind of like a, I don't even know how he would think of it, but like a not embodied kind of what's called a Cartesian mind. Think of it as a force field. Sure, like a, a force field, a disembodied something. Anyway, but then he's like, then, just like our spirit is clothed in a mortal body, our intelligence is, was clothed upon by this spirit body. And an interesting fact that I found from reading a paper by Van Hale, which I'll put a link to as well, because he has a lot of interesting quotes and stuff in that, is he says this, Roberts was relying on a textually inferior 1855 amalgamation of the King Follett discourse, because in that one, it's after the fact, and during that period of time, they didn't quite think of history the same way we do, so they sort of tweaked it, if you will. They put in a bunch of stuff that didn't belong there, and they added stuff that has no basis in the actual sources. So he says, in the earlier 1844 version, mind, intelligence, soul, and spirit are used synonymously and are declared to be eternal, uncreated, and without beginning. But in the 1855 version, the mind or intelligence is noted to be only part of the spirit, the immortal part. And this allows, he believes, for B.H. Roberts, to, for a belief in a procreated spirit clothing for the uncreated mind or intelligence. And these later modifications were actually made 11 years after the discourse and aren't supported by any of the four original reports, like I said. So in another tweak in the in that version of the King Follett Discourses, he says that B.H. Roberts would have read that Joseph Smith taught that the intelligence of spirits is uncreated, while the best evidence holds that it should have read that the intelligence or spirit, meaning the same thing, is uncreated. So he just notes that that's probably part of why B.H. Roberts came to the view that he did, and other believers in this are John A. Woodso, James E. Talmadge, and Joseph Fielding Smith. Anyway, you you know quite a lot about this view, so if you would, talk about maybe the merits of this view, and it seems to be the perfect marriage of the two beliefs. Yeah, this is a theological working of the sources to make sense of them in a way that is faithful to them. I think this is probably the best workout of the various sources that a person could do, given the sources that were available to B.H. Roberts. As you've noted, we now have better access. Since um, E. Hatton Cook published the words of Joseph Smith, we have transcripts of what was actually said, and we can take and compare all the various original notes that were taken of the King Follett Discourse. But of course, you know, there are also a number of other teachings beginning in 1839 that make it very clear that that's not Joseph Smith's view. What's very clear is that Joseph Smith had a consistent view from 1839 on, it didn't change. It was explicit, and he never taught that we can find another source where he's teaching something else that's to the contrary. At this point, my dad had to drop off of the call, so Jacob and I continued the conversation on our own. And we'll continue the conversation with my father in the next podcasts. That's a very brief overview of the views that are predominantly held amongst members of the church. And all of them are, If you, I bet if we did a survey which actually, well, I'll say I actually did do a survey in several Facebook groups that I'm a part of. They're all Mormon groups or LDS groups, and it seems more people that like had studied things, like more the intellectual groups had come to the conclusion that Joseph Smith did indeed not teach spirit birth, but amongst them also all of these views had, it was a really close competition, you could say, 
all the views were held and many people held various views. So I think that's interesting. Jacob, do you remember holding any of these views prior to kind of studying about it? Yeah, I mean, before diving deeper into Joseph Smith and his views, I mean, obviously what's taught at church can be some sort of mix between two and three, right? And so I was always brought up with the the intelligence was one thing, and then there was some sort of spirit birth. What I had in mind was really more along the lines of the second view that we described, Pratt's view, where it was an organizing of these intelligences into some sort of consciousness. And I think that's probably the prevailing view in the church, except there's a view of, you know, there's a mother in heaven and what role she plays in that. I'm sure there's going to be differing views on that. I just always, growing up, hearing about a mother in heaven, is like, not something we talk much, and I figured, well, she's probably involved in that process somehow. I thought that the literal spirit birth, that really wasn't anything that I really heard of until I, I found the God Makers. Oh, really? This was later, yeah. I mean, or maybe I might have heard someone talk about it, but I always thought it was just a caricature that someone was, was making, right? Until I did more Adam God study and things like that, I, I didn't think that was something that was actually taught at really any point. Would you say that you growing up in the church were your views somewhat similarly influenced? Well, it, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to differentiate because like, once you move to a view, it's hard to remember that you ever held the other view because it was uninformed. But I do remember thinking all of the views to some degree. Well, actually, you know, I never even thought of Joseph Smith's apparent view of like no spirit creation whatsoever, because that's we're very adamantly taught that there is a spirit creation. But there's some sort of definite separation between the intelligence and the spirit. Yeah, I think before my mission, I thought more of the Pratt's view because I like it arose like you were not in existence until you were spiritually born. And then that was how you came to be. And then I think I read the King Follett Discourse for the first time on my mission, but still, since I have the teaching of spirit birth in there, I also came to kind of a B.H. Roberts type view where, you know, you were an intelligence and then you got a spirit body and that's how that was. But I don't know, like there's a lot in the church now that there's, I think it's undeniable that the church teaches in a literal birthing in some way because, well, at least they say they are literally our parents and I'm not sure how else that can be interpreted to be literally their parents. Like if just said, they are our parents, and they left it at that, I'd be like, okay, well, they could be. that could mean a lot of things. Because, you know, I think most of Christianity, as far as I understand it, they read the passages in the Bible where it says God is the father of our spirits, or God is, you know, just the idea of saying heavenly father. Then they don't think of a literal birth. They think of more of, well, they believe in creation ex nihilo, but they also believe kind of more of an adoption motif, which I think was also maybe what Joseph Smith was trying to get at. But I just want to have a, Brief conversation then, I guess. So if it does turn out to be true, and most scholars, I think, agree that Joseph Smith did not teach spirit birth, what does it mean for the church now? What does it mean that the church, basically since his death, has taught something that seems to be based on, as Dad says, kind of a a folk belief? Like, does that, I mean, that could throw someone into a, a faith crisis. Like, well, you'd think of church that is led by God and based on revelation would correct that, but we have prophets very adamantly teaching that there is either a liter I mean, I don't know, I think I think most of the current apostles and the prophet believe in a literal spirit birth, because that's what they would have learned about in their childhood. So is the question, like, what are my thoughts on that, or how is one to reconcile that? 
Well, just what, I don't know. Yeah, how how do you reconcile that in your mind? Because it seems like they've gone astray and do you feel like you're part of a, I don't know, does that like bother your faith in any way, I guess I would ask? Does that mean like, well, are we really led by prophets and apostles now? Or what does it mean? Like, if they're getting this wrong, what else are they getting wrong? Or is dad wrong? Because we have continuing revelation and surely the apostles and prophets must have gotten some more insight on this, even though maybe it's not recorded in new scripture. Well, I've, I mean, with my current views, I've taken more of a less literal approach of how things are revealed, just based on what I've seen throughout, not just in the history of the church, but the history of uh, any history, really, that we have of people recording their experience with God. It doesn't seem God is super concerned with people understanding the intricacies of how everything functions in the eternities. So I think that he's not as concerned with revealing the minutiae. Otherwise, it would be a lot easier to figure out these mysteries of godliness, right? So I'm under the impression that if it's something that is leading someone towards God, and it's an enlightening sort of truth, even if it's something that's not factually 100% correct, God isn't going to take them from that path. And I think that the, the sort of culture that the, the church has created, and just the way that culture for a good portion of the world is today, that the message of a Heavenly Mother possibly having some sort of literal spirit birth, or uh, even having her involved in some sort of birth that has us literally come from them in some way, whether that's some sort of physical manifestation of us coming out of her or some other way. I think that if that's inspiring to people, that God's not really going to see it that important to correct. All right. Well, I can respect that view. I, I can see how, I mean, that's close to my view as well, but I can also see from another point of view how that can be very troubling to someone. For sure. Uh, especially when we have quotes from Joseph Smith saying something like, one of the most important things is to know the character of God, right? And if you consider the character of God being, you know, how, what is his exact relation to us, and how did we come to be in this relationship with him, in a matter of whether it's physical or if it's some sort of adoption, yeah, that, I could definitely see how that could rock someone's testimony or put in some sort of unbalance what they've always believed and to put them into some sort of faith crisis. One of my frustrations, I guess, with our teachings, and just in general. Is it, it seems like towards the end of his life, Joseph Smith was starting to reveal or elucidate doctrines that were new and earth-shattering and were, you know, a different way of thinking. But unfortunately, he made a lot of statements that can be interpreted in a lot of ways, and then he was killed and never had a chance to clarify that. And so it's like, it's, it's just kind of frustrating that we had like this hint at like the ultimate answers, the ultimate thing, you know, the ultimate answer to like, what is it that humans are? Where do we come from? And then it was cut off so we can't, you know, have his direct source and then all sorts of different directions were taken from there. And it's like, now there's a lot of confusion. So it's just like, it seems like a big mess. And it's like, it's, I don't know, it's just kind of frustrating for me, you know? I wish he'd lived like one more month or just wrote down one more revelation and be like, this is what I meant. But alas, that is not the way it went. <laughs> Yeah, frustrating for sure, and makes you wonder if things were revealed on, on the timeline because of some sort of knowledge or of a probability of, you know, we're probably coming towards the end here and the ultimate tease or something, right? <laughs> but anyway, despite that, 
least the way I kind of reconcile that. I was like, well, well, not reconcile even. I just, the way that I believe that most people have come to view this way is, like Dad said, kind of with the correlation program and with the sources that are available. And I, you know, I, it was kind of a weird paradigm shift for me to understand that, like, leaders of the church and people that were writing the manuals a lot didn't have access to half of Joseph Smith's sermons. In fact, when I was reading about B.H. Roberts' view and Joseph F. Smith had doubted the accuracy of the King Follett discourse, like he literally hadn't read it and they didn't believe it, you know? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if this is really from Joseph Smith. So it's like, that's like the, you know, now we consider that probably his greatest sermon because it reveals like the foundations of the distinct Mormon teachings. And he didn't even know it existed. So, you know, I think kind of a history of that and then different people's views being put forth as the main view. And then, you know, we tend not to question that kind of thing. And maybe that's how we arrived at what we have today. But I don't know. I don't really have a good way to make it all better. You know, it's just, there are many views open. And I guess the fact of the matter is, in the end, you know, all that really matters is the intelligence, whatever it is, it's a part of us and it is eternal. It can't be created. It's as old as God, and we are the same species as God as far as, you know, whatever view you take, we come from, we either, you know, are made out of the same thing that God's made out of, or we are the same kind of being literally that God is, and so in the end, I guess it doesn't ultimately matter, in this life at least, but, you know, for certain people like us, at least me, you know, I really wish I knew, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's one of those yearnings of the soul, right, and... I think that's a big part of the veil. I think we underestimate, you know, the importance of being cut off from a lot of this knowledge. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, if God was really there, why wouldn't he reveal it? Why wouldn't he open? I think there's a real purpose to that. And um, for the vast majority of us, I think we're to live by faith and never have this earth-shattering, undeniable, some sort of experience that is impossible to turn away from. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to, to cultivate types of characteristics and things that we're here ultimately for. Very true. All right, so now I'm going to kind of make a very solid case, at least in my view, that Joseph Smith indeed taught kind of the opposite of spirit birth or spirit creation, that spirits are eternal and cannot be created. So we already read that one from the King Follett Discourse, but I'll read several quotes from basically starting in 1839 all the way through the end of his life. All right, the first one is recorded in the Willard Richards Pocket Companion Journal on August 8, 1839. In there, Joseph Smith is quoted as saying, The priesthood is an everlasting principle and existed with God from eternity and will to eternity without beginning of days or end of years. The keys have to be brought from heaven whenever the gospel is sent. The spirit of man is not a created being. It existed from eternity and will exist to eternity. Anything created cannot be eternal. And earth, water, and so forth, all these had their existence in an elementary state from eternity. And I guess that's one thing I forgot to ask about. This elementary state, I think, is another source of the Pratt's view. Anyway, so from that quote, you can see two truths. Joseph Smith taught that spirits were not created, and whatever is eternal is not created. It seems clear that eternal spirit means an uncreated spirit that has no beginning, ever. Uh, I guess I forgot to ask this too, but in a lot of these quotes, Joseph Smith used a consistent example, which is he takes a ring or a circle and he says, if it has a beginning, you know, if you cut the ring, 
and it has an end. You see, that's logic. And doesn't really make a lot of sense in like modern logic where it's like, well, I mean, you can create a ring and like then it has no end, but it had a beginning. But I think what he's trying to say is that, and he probably didn't have words to express it because he wasn't like a philosopher, but I think he's basically saying that, we've explained this before, so if God created us ex nihilo, that means we don't exist of necessity, meaning it's not our nature to exist. And that if it's not our nature to exist, then it's possible that we can cease existing. So I think he's more saying ontologically, if something has a beginning, you know, it could also leave existence. But what he's trying to say is that spirits, since they exist of ontological necessity, or, you know, they literally, that's their nature is to exist, then they can't have an end. And that's good logic. That's what he's saying. So that's what I take from that, at least. All right. Anyway, next quote. On the 5th of February, 1840, Joseph Smith gave a speech and he said this, I believe that God is eternal, that he had no beginning and can have no end. Eternity means that which is without beginning or end. I believe that the soul is eternal and had no beginning. It can have no end. And then the notes of the person that took down the speech, which I guess is also in the Willard Richards pocket companion, he says, he entered here into some explanations which were so brief that I could not perfectly comprehend him. But the idea seemed to be that the soul of man the spirit had existed from eternity in the bosom of divinity, and so far as he was intelligible to me, the soul must ultimately return from whence it came. He said very little of rewards and of punishments, but one conclusion, from what he did say, was irresistible. He contended throughout that everything which had a beginning must have an ending. And consequently, if the punishment of man commenced in the next world, it must, according to his logic and belief, have an end. That's where he's referring to hell being a temporary place. And so here, Joseph Smith repeats the same things. He says, he uses the word spirit and soul interchangeably. He again reaffirms that God is eternal and clearly states that God has no beginning. And then he contends that, and the spirit is eternal in the sense that it is uncreated and cannot have a beginning. All right, next is from a sermon delivered in Washington, D.C. on the 6th of February, 1840. And it was published in an Eastern newspaper over there. And we're supposed to note here that soul is synonymous with spirit again and is without beginning. He said this, I believe that God is eternal, that he had no beginning and can have no end. Eternity means that which is without beginning or end. I believe that the soul is eternal and had no beginning. It can have no end. The soul of man, the spirit of man, had existed from eternity in the bosom of divinity. All right, and then January 5th, 1841, he said, if the soul of man had a beginning, it will surely have an end. Spirits are eternal. At the first organization in heaven, we were all present and saw the Savior chosen and appointed, and the plan of salvation made, and we sanctioned it. Right, and then March 28, 1841, he said, I guess this is someone writing down, so they say it in the third person, they say, He says, The spirit or intelligence of men are self-existent principles before the foundations of this earth, and quotes the Lord's question to Job when he asked, Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? as evidence that Job was existing somewhere at that time. And then he says, God is good, and all his acts are for the benefit of the inferior intelligences, and God saw that those intelligences had not power to defend themselves against those that had a tabernacle. Therefore, the Lord calls them together in a council and agrees to form for them tabernacles, so that he might gender the spirit and the tabernacle together, so as to create sympathy for their fellow men. And gender in the 1800s just meant to create basically like you know he's gendering the spirit and the tabernacle together i mean he's putting them together 
tabernacle, referring to the body, of course. All right, so same thing, Joseph uses spirits and intelligences as synonyms, and they're self-existent. All right, next, in some time, we don't know when this one's from, sometime between 1839 and 41, Willard Richards records him saying this, and I guess note that here the spirit is not created, and the father is referred to as an organizer, meaning an organizer of, like, a social organization. So it says, the spirit of man is not cre a created being. It existed from eternity and will exist to eternity. Anything created cannot be eternal. The father called all spirits before him at the creation of man and organized them, meaning he brought them together into an organization. He, meaning Adam, is the head, was told to multiply and replenish the earth. Right, then from the George Lobb Journal on April 6th, 1843, Joseph Smith is recorded as saying, How came spirits? Why, they are and were self-existing as all eternity, and our spirits are as eternal as the very God is himself, and that we choose to come to this earth to take upon ourselves tabernacles by the permission of our Father. Next is, again, that same quote from the King Follett Discourse, from April 7th, 1844, but this is Van Hale's take on it, who's another Mormon scholar. So he took the sources and kind of wrote his own version of what he thinks is meant. So I'll read that again. It says, The soul, the mind of man, the immortal spirit, all men say God created it in the beginning. The very idea lessens man in my estimation. I do not believe the doctrine. The mind of man is as immortal as God himself. I know that my testimony is true. Hence, when I talk to these mourners, what have they lost? They are only separated from their bodies for a short season. Their spirits existed co-equal with God, or co-eternal with God, and they now exist in a place where they converse together, the same as we do on the earth. It is not logic to say that a spirit is immortal and yet have a beginning, because if a spirit has a beginning, it will have an end. That's not good logic. I take my ring from my finger and liken it unto the mind of man, the immortal spirit, because it has no beginning. All the fools, learned and wise men from the beginning of creation who say that man had a beginning proves that he must have an end, and then the doctrine of annihilation would be true. But if I am right, and I might with boldness proclaim from the housetops that God never did have the power to create the spirit of man at all, God himself could not create himself, intelligence exists upon a self-existent principle, it is a spirit from age to age, and there is no creation about it. God himself finds himself in the midst of spirits and glory, because he was greater, and because he saw proper to institute laws, whereby the rest could have the privilege to advance like himself, that they might have one glory upon another, in all that knowledge, power, and glory, and so forth, in order to save the world of spirits. Okay, so, again, same thing. You know, spirits are souls, or intelligence, same thing. Spirit is uncreated and just as eternal as God. And the you know the whole purpose of the King Follett sermon, Joseph Smith stated earlier in the sermon, was to know the only true God who is the Father of Jesus Christ. And this one true God is just as eternal as the uncreated spirit. And last but not least, and this isn't necessarily chronologically, but the scripture from Abraham 3, verse 18 says, How be it that he made the greater star as also, if there be two spirits and one shall be more intelligent than the other. Yet these two spirits, notwithstanding one is more intelligent than the other, have no beginning. They existed before, they shall have no end. They shall exist after, for they are nolum, which he says means eternal. And the Lord said unto me, Abraham, These two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other, 
There shall be another more intelligent than they, and I am the Lord thy God, I am more intelligent than they all. So it seems that Joseph Smith had kind of this idea that we were all individual, whether it's minds or fully formed spirits or whatever it is that he thought an intelligence was, we were out there and that at some point God noticed that he, you know, was greater than all the other intelligences and he wanted them to advance to be like him and we agreed that we wanted to be like that. So he brought them together and they became, you know, we became followers of God through what you could deem adoption or, you know, however, I mean, probably kind of the way Joseph Smith saw himself, he's a person and all of a sudden he has all these followers and then they follow him. So he seemed to view God in that way and then God made a plan, we all agreed to do it, and then, you know, we came to Earth. So, interesting. All right, I think I'm going to end with that. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.